Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Mary Bonato maps the path to marriage equality. Colonel Jean Gentile examines what went wrong in Afghanistan. Edward Hasbrook details how American travelers are surveilled and controlled. Amity Schleys discusses the Coolidge presidency. And Steve Vladek discusses drones and the new American way of war. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The U.S. relationship with China is, to put it mildly, complicated. We're going to talk about that here for a little bit with uh, two Cato Institute scholars, Dan Eikenson. He is the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies and Justin Logan, the director for foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. We're recording this in our studios here at the Cato Institute for the first time, which is notable for a couple of reasons. But just to get to the main subject here, there is this incredible tension between the United States and China because China really serves at least two functions to the United States. It is a rival militarily, and it is also an important trading partner and a growing trading partner. Yeah, I think that uh, up until a few years ago, Americans were successful, policymakers were successful at treating the relationship on two separate tracks. The economic relationship had this enormous upside. And people didn't want to complicate it with issues on which we don't see eye to eye with Beijing, human rights issues, weapons proliferation, things like that. Ever since the Great Recession, I think things have changed. The United States has now sort of lost its mojo to a certain extent. There's a tendency to look at China as a rival more now than before. You know, we're growing very slowly. We're perceiving China's advances as threatening the status quo in a way that we hadn't before. And now we have a more um, confrontational sort of economic policy, and certainly that has been manifest in this administration's policies. How was it in the Bush administration? Well, it was prior to the Great Recession where we emerged at very slow growth, high unemployment, recognizing that we're in severe debt and you know China owns a lot of that debt. And meanwhile, China's growing at double digit percentage rate. It was different. I mean, there was a honeymoon period. China had joined the WTO in 2001, had implemented more reforms than any other country had ever had to do in its history. And I think the administration didn't want to push too hard, and there were huge benefits accruing across the board. And that changed really when the Democrats took control of Congress in the second half of the second term of the Bush administration. It's certainly the case, too, that what we used to call the global war on terror had a lot to do with the Bush administration's attitude toward China. There was a pretty provocative, pretty radical president in Taiwan that it became sort of an open secret around town that President Bush was not terribly fond of. He was sort of seen as complicating U.S.-China relations in a way that was unhelpful when the United States wanted to stay very much focused on trying to prevent terrorism, the wars in Afghanistan, and then later in Iraq. And, and this was just sort of seen as an unwanted intervention. It bears pointing out, and it's interesting, when the Bush administration took office, remember there was the EP3 incident where an American plane was downed, depending on who you talk to, in or near Chinese territorial waters. And there was a lot of inertia moving toward a more confrontational U.S.-China relationship. That was in the spring of 2001. 2001 was an interesting year, to put it mildly, and that just sort of really fell by the wayside. So I think in some sense, a lot of these pressures were sort of incipient even 10 or 12 years ago, but our greater Middle East adventures sort of intervened and focused America in a different region. Now, our colleague John Mueller was recently debating, I believe, John Bolton on television talking about the 30,000 or so troops that the United States has in the Korean Peninsula. And uh, John Bolton's point was, well, we might need those troops there to stay there because we might need to launch them into any number of places in that region, which is at best a troubling thought for you know, China to consider with respect to the United States. Look, there's a fundamental problem when it comes to American security studies scholars or foreign policy scholars in Washington thinking about the U.S.-China relationship. We like to start the clock running today or 10 years ago or 20 years ago and say, look, 
We're just defending the status quo. We're not doing anything radical here, guys. All we're trying to do is to prevent this sort of revanchist China from upsetting the status quo. Empathize with China about China's view of the status quo for just a moment. The United States controls China's sea lanes of communication. China cannot engage in international trade without the say-so of the United States Navy. That tends to make countries rather nervous. The United States has formal treaty relations with a number of countries in the region, Japan particularly, that has, suffice it to say, a rather dicey relationship with China. China sees the United States as encircling China militarily and threatening it. And if you wanted to empathize with their point of view, if China were much more powerful than the United States today, had formal treaty obligations to Cuba, Venezuela, an array of countries in South America, controlled the sea lanes in and around San Diego, for example, and viewed all of this as the sort of benign ministrations of a noble hegemon, we would be very squirrely about that. And so, look, you should acknowledge that and you can take it to say, yes, but that's just the way politics is or what have you. But people don't realize the way China sees the world and it sees the world as the United States encircling it and leaving and it sees its own economic prosperity as subject to the vagaries of the political winds in Washington, which as we can see, you know, blow from a variety of directions. Dan, I can say not completely related to that, but this idea that the United States needs to cram all sorts of things into its various trade agreements, certainly China has some issues that probably ought to be dealt with, uh, with regard to human rights, with regard to sending North Koreans back to North Korea when they escape. But, you know, the United States also has a tendency to build these kinds of demands into trade agreements. Yeah, I think we need to not lose sight of the fact that despite these mounting frictions, geopolitical frictions, we have this humongous economic relationship. It's $500 billion of uh, trade and investment. It's a huge relationship. It has been mutually beneficial. I think politicians tend to highlight the negatives. Uh, Americans are very familiar with sort of the litany of Chinese infractions. They manipulate their currency. They subsidize industry. They dump their products. They steal intellectual property. They poison our children and our dogs. Now, some of those allegations have some truth to them, but a lot of it is blown out of proportion. With respect to the ongoing trade agreements, they are being used sort of as tools of foreign policy now more than economic policy. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement really had its genesis in the United States in the State Department, not, not at the USTR. And its original purpose and the reason it was embraced by uh, Secretary Clinton at the time was that it was a way to sort of rein in China, or at least to show China that we are interested in the region. Likewise, the TTIP, the transatlantic agreement, has a similar aim in that the United States and Europe want to forge rules that are going to somehow compel the Chinese to behave in a certain way with respect to state-owned enterprises and currency uh, tactics and things like that. So China is not involved directly in either of those agreements, but it is very much on the minds of negotiators in all these countries. Justin Logan, what are the specific security commitments that the United States has in the region? What are the implications of continuing to have them? Some of them obvious, some of them not so obvious. Sure. Well, just to take something that's been in the news recently and may be of interest to our listeners, there's a disputed dare I say, uh, maybe provocatively, worthless set of islands called Diaoyu in China and Senkaku in Japan, which have been under the administrative control of a private Japanese citizen. Actually, when I was in uh, Japan last year, the mayor of Tokyo decided to buy the islands from the private buyer in an effort to provoke the national government to buy them itself so that they would be considered national territory of Japan. There are a number of overlapping, complicated, and contradictory American positions in international law about the standing of these islands. And you can talk to any Chinese or Japanese diplomat, respectively, and get a litany of, you know, legitimate legal complaints about how the United States is not acting in accord with legal commitments that it's made internationally. 
So there have been a number of military incidents where you've had Chinese vessels in particular. The, the most shocking incident was a Chinese naval vessel locked a fire control radar on a Japanese Coast Guard vessel, which is essentially the equivalent to someone pointing a loaded gun at your head. And you certainly hope that he doesn't pull the trigger, but you see the gun, you realize that he has the gun pointed at your head. So this is not, you know, sort of frivolous things. People tend to read about what's in the paper. So we read about Benghazi and we read about Syria and we read about all of these issues. But if the U.S.-China relationship goes off the rails, which I certainly hope it does not, Benghazi and Syria and all of these issues will not merit a footnote in our children's history textbooks. So this is serious stuff. And to get back to Senkaku's and Diaoyu's, the United States position when it comes to that is that they are covered by the U.S. Uh, the Mutual Defense Treaty with Japan, right? So the United States is on the hook for their defense. But we don't take a position as to whether or not they're Japanese. So there's this bizarre uh, doublethink in the minds of American diplomats that, well, this is a way to hedge this. You know, we're not going to go all in and say we're siding with Japan. We're only saying we'll go to war on behalf of Japan if they come to blows with China over these islands. So there's this extraordinary confusion and contradictory thinking in the mind of American diplomats and foreign policymakers that given the stakes involved, not just economically, but you can imagine a shooting war spiraling dramatically out of control and having enormous consequences for the global economy, for the people of you know East Asia generally and conceivably for the U.S. Navy, uh, if you look 10 or 20 years down the road, that this needs to be considered more carefully uh, by American policymakers. And it's one of those unfortunate situations where there's by and large agreement between the two parties about the nature of U.S. P policy toward China. And sure, Democrats or Republicans want to tune the fine-tuning dial this way or that. But I worry that people aren't really thinking through what sort of a China we want to see in the world, how our policies may or may not contribute to producing such a China, and what sorts of appropriate steps we would take to bring about a future uh, where you know we avoid the worst sorts of scenarios that could emerge from the status quo today. So is a lot of this just being driven by institutional inertia that is trying to justify someone's decisions years ago? I don't know that it's so much institutional inertia as it is intellectual inertia. The reality is that Chinese economic growth has created a new reality where it has begun to narrow the gap in relative power between itself and the United States, right? So if you look at the balance of power between the United States and China 30 years ago, it's just not, it's, it's not something that you would even consider. You'd be laughed out of court for thinking it a legitimate question. That's decreasingly true. Now, to be clear, the United States is still enormously more militarily powerful than China, but less so than it was 20 or 30 years ago. So the Chinese understandably wish with their growing power to have a growing say over their security environment. They wish to be less vulnerable to the outside administrations of various powers, including the United States. And that's not because they're wicked. That's not, you know, for any malicious region, reason, but because that's what countries do. And I don't think that American policymakers have reckoned with the idea that they have this deep, profound contradiction at the core of their uh, uh, overall policy that our economic policy is making China wealthier, which has been terrific. It's lifted tens, if not hundreds of millions of people into actually a middle class, a Chinese middle class, flawed politics, et cetera. But at the same time, we want China to act like it's the weak power that it was 30 years ago. And I don't think that that's likely to happen. And if people don't get their heads around the fact that as China gets more powerful, it's going to want more say in the world, I think we're going to have stunning realization one day that, uh-oh, China thinks that it should have a say in some important matters in its neighborhood. And American policymakers have not historically responded well to surprises like that. So, uh, Dan Eikenson, how do we get to free commerce with all entangling alliances with none with respect to China specifically? A lot of people like to point to the miracle of China's growth begun in 1979 with reforms, double-digit growth for 30-plus years on average. But what China has done is made it from a subsistence economy to a mid-level manufacturing economy. And since then, it's been struggling. If it's going to continue to grow and become a wealthy country, if it's going to get rich before it gets old, it really needs to have homegrown innovation 
And so far, they've been unsuccessful at that. There are forced technology transfer policies that they impose on Western investors. They have these indigenous innovation policies where they encourage, where they give special privileges to companies that register intellectual property in China. Now, and most disconcerting, is this uh, cybersecurity or cyber espionage issue. Certainly, there have been lots of allegations about China using uh, cyber espionage to steal U.S. intellectual property. I haven't seen any evidence. There's no smoking gun. Apparently, the information is is classified. Uh, But if, in fact, this is true, uh, it is just further evidence of the fact that China recognizes that it is having difficulty cultivating homegrown innovation. There's really only one way to do that, and that is to encourage dissent, to encourage a culture of dissent, which has been lacking in China. And I think that is the answer that uh, many of us liberals and libertarians have been hoping for. You need to grant political and civil liberties to China's citizens in order for them to have the courage to criticize one another's ideas and create uh, homegrown innovation. And once that happens, I think uh, you know China will probably be more of a global citizen and play a more uh, positive role in global developments. Yeah, I think that's been, you know, you hear people sometimes, I think it was the Freedom House rankings, actually, that when you look at them, China's sort of freedom, and this was probably in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, you know, was considered to be at the same stage of political freedom as it was in, I don't know, you know, 1980 or 19. That's absurd, right? So China is, is considerably more liberal than it was 30, 40 years ago. But as Dan rightly points out, it ought not to be called liberal. And part of the reason I think that there's this deep uh, uncertainty in the minds of American policy makers is that China is neither fish nor fowl, right? It's not the Soviet Union, but neither is it the United Kingdom, right? It has a really sort of swirling I, I would say market economy. I mean, it is certainly, you know, it's very hard to find uh, in, uh, you know, a pure market economy these days. Uh, but China, with a number of considerable flaws, has what could be called a market economy. There are a lot of Westerners who've done business over there and made lots and lots of money over there. But at the same time, there's this ambivalence about the political system in China and about how the interaction of the growth bestowed by the economic system and the ideology imposed by the political system, how those interact to produce a China that behaves in the world stage on a way that the United States is happy with. And I should just say, as a coda to this discussion, the United States has an extraordinarily ambitious policy and insists on getting right up in China's face militarily. So I I certainly would favor backing off the gas pedal on that policy and making China a little bit less nervous. You know, I think it was Henry Kissinger who said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And if you empathize with China, you certainly can see why they would be a little twitchy about uh, U.S. foreign policy. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Justin Logan, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Eikenson, Director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. You can read more on our relationship with China. Cato's published many books on China. You can go to our website, cato.org. A lot has gone wrong for the U.S. military in Afghanistan. From a failed attempt to apply the Iraq surge strategy to propping up a less-than-dependable government in Kabul, these most recent years in Afghanistan have been the most deadly. Jean Gentile is a U.S. Army officer and a history professor at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. I am a serving Army colonel and I teach history at West Point and I consider myself to be a student of history. And so, if you don't mind, I'd like to start off with some history and to talk about um, the American war in Vietnam and pose this question of what went wrong for this panel in Afghanistan to the question that people were asking shortly after the United States lost its first war in Vietnam as to what went wrong with the war in Vietnam, and more specifically, why did the United States lose the war in Vietnam? And what came to be, I think, understood is that the reason why, I think the right answer for why or what went wrong in Vietnam and why the United States lost was that the United States lost the war because it failed at strategy. And strategy in the Vietnam War should have discerned very early on that the war was unwinnable based on a moral and material cost that the American people 
were willing to pay. I think strategy also failed to appreciate in the post-World War II world the very real limits of American military power and what it could accomplish when it tried to do nation building at the barrel of a gun. And also what I think strategy failed to understand, especially the military's side of bringing together a strategy, was this, and I think also policy in the American people shared this mistaken belief that in any war that the United States commits itself to, military power or war will work. As long as the operations are done correctly, war can work. These were, I think, the real lessons um, that came out of Vietnam and answered the question, what went wrong? What went wrong was a failure of US strategy. But you see, what started happening in the 1970s and especially in the 1980s, this basic insight, I'm gonna tie all this to Afghanistan in a minute. This basic insight as to what went wrong in Vietnam, namely that the United States failed its strategy, started to get buried by a different explanation that said what went wrong in Vietnam was the way the war was fought. In this line of thinking, the United States lost the war in Vietnam, not because it didn't get strategy or policy right, but because it didn't fight the war in the correct way. See, there's a big difference there, is the way the war was fought. And one of the first to make this argument was an army colonel named Harry Summers, who in 1982 came out with a book titled On Strategy. And Harry Summers said, the United States could have won the war in Vietnam if it wouldn't have focused on counterinsurgency and directed its efforts toward fighting the North Vietnamese um, Army and the Viet Cong main force units. That was the correct way to fight the war, according to Harry Summers. And then a few years later, in 1988, a different, really actually an opposite argument, but still the same coin, although a different side, right, was starting to be put forward. And this argument was first laid out by a man named Andrew Kropenovich in his book, The Army in Vietnam. And Kropenovich argued, again, like Harry Summers, only different, the war could have been won if it would have been fought correctly. And Kropenovich argued that if the United States had not focused on heavy use of firepower and instead concentrated on winning the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese people, or in other words, done counterinsurgency correctly, the war could have been won. And in the 1990s, this explanation really becomes the prominent one. And it is shown in books like John Nagel's book, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, Louis Sorley's A Better War, and H.R. McMaster's Dereliction of Duty. Now, now this, the reason why I start with this Vietnam analogy is because out of this latter explanation comes a story that was built around counterinsurgency warfare. Call it a narrative. Call it the counterinsurgency narrative. And this narrative said that counterinsurgency wars, like the United States and Vietnam, or the war in Iraq, America's second war in Iraq, or the war in Afghanistan can be won as long as the army and the military fights it correctly. And the way it fights it correctly is by bringing better savior generals on board to transform their armies and get them doing the process, the procedures, and the tactics of counterinsurgency correctly. Which brings us to Iraq in 2006. And so after three bloody years of American occupation, people started to ask the same question again. What went wrong or what has gone wrong in Iraq? And the answer very quickly becomes bad tactics and bad generals. And the solution is get a savior general on board and he soon arrives onto the scene and his name was General David Petraeus with the surge of troops who would turn his army around, get it doing the tactics of counterinsurgency correctly, and the war could be put on a path to success. Now, what brought about lowered levels of violence in Iraq by the end of 2007 had to do with a lot of other things. But this belief that by turning the tactical approach of the army around, as done by a savior general, this kind of thing can put these wars of counterinsurgency on the path to success, which then brings us to, or brings me to the war in Afghanistan in 2009. People asked again, well, we've been here since 2002, and now it's 2009, what has gone wrong? And again, we get the same answer. Bad tactics, bad generals, and the solution, the answer, 
is to tweak the tactics, get the army to do counterinsurgency correctly, bring an enlightened general on board, and this time his name was Stanley McChrystal, and the war will be put on the path to success. But the solution in Afghanistan, I think, these are my views, just like in Vietnam and just like in Iraq, has never been about the tactical use of military force or better generals replacing bad generals. This is the myth that many people have come to believe, but that's not the reality of it. The solution or the answer to this question of what has gone wrong with the war in Afghanistan, in my view, is strategy. And let me, let me define what I mean when I say strategy. And it's a very much informed by Clausewitz. And it's a simple explanation, but I think it's useful. In war, strategy sits in the middle of two other things or planes, right? On this side over here is policy, which puts war into place and gives its overall purpose. And then over here are the resources of war, oftentimes the tactical application of military force. And if strategy is done right, it looks to policy to see what the purpose of the war is for, and then it applies the resources of war to achieve policy aims with the least amount of blood and treasure spent to achieve that policy aim. So when I say strategy, that's the definition that I'm using for strategy. And US strategy in Afghanistan, I think, has been botched from the start. Not from 2009, but all the way back to 2002 when the United States committed itself to a nation building campaign. The core policy for the United States in Afghanistan and when I say core policy, I mean, what is the primary purpose for the United States military in Afghanistan? The core policy in Afghanistan, as stated by senior generals, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, both presidents. I mean, I've gone through and I've read the unclassified testimony to both the House Armed Services, Senate Armed Services from 2002 all the way up to the present. And when commanding generals, undersecretaries of defense, whomever, were asked by senators or congressmen, what are we doing in Afghanistan? Why are we there? The answer in one sentence has always been the destruction of Al-Qaeda, period. Period, the destruction of Al-Qaeda. Now, if you think about it, this is a very, very limited core policy aim. But since 2002, the United States has sought to use a maximalist operational method called armed nation building, which American counterinsurgency is one and the same thing, to achieve this very limited core policy aim. And I ask myself why. And I think it's because of this rock solid belief that war, American war, can always be made to work. You see why this narrative, this counterinsurgency narrative that I talked about a few minutes ago is so important and so dangerous? Because war, in this view, can always be made to work as long as the tactics are tweaked and the better general is brought into place. The Supreme Court has heard oral arguments challenging the Defense of Marriage Act. As of this recording, we're still waiting on a ruling. But this change in public perception and various laws at the state level governing marriage didn't happen overnight. At a Capitol Hill forum in April, Mary Bonato, Civil Rights Project Director of the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, laid out the historical path to marriage equality. Okay, so first of all, with respect to the history of this piece, you know, getting to the Supreme Court on these issues, I have to just say, is momentous. Among our most important principles, liberty for all, equality, equal protection of the law, of course, in the prism of family, marriage, the people that matter to you most. And, you know, of course, as much as this is about principles, it's so much about real people. The heart and soul of these issues always is the real people who are affected, and the law really matters in terms of the lives that people can live. I also will say, of course, that legally, marriage is enormously consequential, and DOMA's discrimination against already married people, of course, is very consequential, because these laws, marriage-related laws, affect people in every area of life and death. And then, of course, because there have been historically marriage restrictions, our nation has come to see the right to marry also as a civil right. So it's quite a crucible of issues that the court was confronted with. 
I will say very briefly that there have always been gay people who have wanted to marry, although that hope, I think, was pretty much crushed out of people by some very dismissive cases from the 1970s where one author compared the courts in those cases and the way they treated the cases as saying it was though it was a man coming to court seeking a right to be pregnant, like they just didn't get it at all. And I think people just felt like, well, this is not doable for us. But in 1993, a spark of hope was rekindled by the Hawaii Supreme Court, which said that the you know, state's denial of marriage licenses to three same-sex couples raised a discrimination issue, raised an equal protection issue. And the state had to come back with justifications for why these couples are being excluded. And although that's a very long story, the short version is progress in Hawaii was ultimately thwarted by the political process. Hawaii continues to fight another day. They have civil unions now and are, are trying to get to marriage as well. But that was in 1993, and I think it was by 1997 that... Um, the stage was really set for a, what ultimately became a defeat at the ballot on a constitutional amendment in 1998. But in the meantime, again, eight years before same-sex couples married anywhere, the Congress in 1996 passed the Defense of Marriage Act. Here's my translation of the Defense of Marriage Act, with no disrespect intended to anyone who might have drafted it, who might be in this room, <laughs> is, if any state is crazy enough to ever let same-sex couples marry, then A, States, well, and I have to recognize it anyway, and that's section two of DOMA saying states are free to enact their own public policies with respect to same-sex marriage, singling out same-sex marriage in federal law. And then section three of DOMA, which is the one that's being litigated right now, which says that there's a federal definition of marriage for purposes of all federal programs, which essentially would wipe out and does wipe out the existing legal marriages of same-sex couples under federal law. So that passed, and then in 1997, I teamed up with two people in Vermont, and filed a case there called Baker versus Vermont, which was decided at the end of 1999. And we didn't get the result we wanted, but what the court said was, yep, there's an equal protection issue here. And same-sex couples have to have the same protections under law that other people have. And we're going to leave it to the legislature to decide whether to do that through marriage or some separate system. And that led to ultimately the creation of the nation's first civil union law, providing those same protections, calling it a marital status, but continuing to exclude same-sex couples from marriage. I then filed a case in Massachusetts in April 2001, making it clear that we were seeking marriage itself. And in November 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court broke the historic barrier and ended the exclusion of same-sex couples, affirming that the Massachusetts Constitution and I suggest all of our constitutions do not tolerate the creation of second-class citizens in this nation. Marriages began in May of 2004, and from my perspective, that was really when things began to pick up, both in terms of uh, some of the opposition out there, but really, much more importantly, what happened was an outbreak of happiness. There was so much joy. There were so many weddings. Weddings are happy occasions. Families come together, and finally, people were able to stand up in front of their family and friends and make that pledge ideally of a lifelong commitment and being there for one another through the good times and the bad, and people began to understand on a human level that what same-sex couples are seeking in marriage actually has a lot in common with what other people are seeking in marriage, making that commitment, being there for one another, and having the freedom finally to do that. Because there was some blowback in Massachusetts, sort of a ferocious attack for a number of years is how it was experienced, we were not able to secure marriage in any other states until 2008, which was both Connecticut, again, a result of litigation that we did, and then also in California. As you know, Proposition 8 reversed the result in California, but Connecticut codified the decision. In 2009, we had an, a unanimous Supreme Court decision for, in Iowa, and then we had legislatures, significantly legislatures, entering the fray and deciding that it was the right thing constitutionally and as a matter of public policy to allow same-sex couples to join in marriage. In Vermont, where there was an override of a governor's veto, in New Hampshire and in Maine, although again we lost at the ballot in Maine in 2009. And then New York, District of Columbia, this past year, Washington, Maryland, approving of marriage legislatively, and then in Maine in 2012, and this is another effort of which I was part, we went to the ballot directly we asked the voters to approve of a marriage law, and I think for the first time proved that people their minds and be with you. And I think we see that all the time now in public opinion polls, since in every poll, the demographics, no matter what demographic group you're in, there is movement. 
So at this point, we stand in a situation where there are nine states in the District of Columbia with marriage, nine states that have separate systems that provide protections at the state law level, whether they're called civil union or registered domestic partnership. Uh, there are a number of cases underway. There are states with more modest systems. But clearly, the nation is in progress. However, there are also 31 states out there with constitutional amendments on marriage. 20 of those forbid not only marriage, but other protections. So clearly, the path forward is going to be a difficult one. But I think the lesson to take from this is that every branch of government and the court of public opinion are involved in this discussion about how to advance quality, about recognizing that gay and lesbian people are part of the community and have families and need protection. The United States government practices surprisingly comprehensive surveillance of air travel, amassing data about the comings and goings of all Americans who fly. Travel expert Edward Hasbrook has been researching travel surveillance for many years. His findings reveal a stunning level of government surveillance, control of the traveler, and intrusion into commercial travel IT systems. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. Since September 11th of 2001, the U.S. government has implemented an extraordinarily comprehensive system of surveillance and control of our movements, both within the country and abroad. Bits and pieces of it have been called out from time to time, but I think there's been little understanding of the comprehensive big picture, which is what I'll try and give you as quickly as possible today. The first step is the ID requirement of people having government-issued ID credentials in order to travel by common carrier. Not so much to prevent people without government-issued ID from traveling, although that's an incidental bad effect, but in order to ensure that each act of travel can be logged and correlated into the second component of this process, an ID-linked lifetime personal travel history of your movements, on the basis of which the government has then been able to move to a permission-based travel control regime in which real-time decisions are made each time you want to go somewhere as to whether the government will let you on the basis of your identity and on the dossier of history linked to that identity. Finally, once that permission system is in place, the government has made the final step of flicking the default from yes to no, so that rather than a presumptive right to travel, which can be uh, interfered with only on the basis of judicial action, the presumption is that nobody's allowed to travel unless they've received affirmative government prior permission. So I think the uh, government's insistence since 9-11 that everything about airports is different and not subject to any of the usual rules has made it more difficult than it should be to put these things in perspective. I think actually that the, a good frame of reference for comparison for travel surveillance is the surveillance that's gone on of communications, CALEA in particular, and the NSA's warrantless wiretapping. They have in common with travel surveillance that they're recording movements. In one case, movements of messages. In the other case, actual movements of your physical person. Both have involved unfunded mandates and burdens on industry, in the case of Kalia, on the telecoms. In the case of the programs I'm going to be talking about, more than $2 billion by the DHS' own gross underestimate of mandated modifications to travel industry IT systems in order to support performing these government surveillance and control functions. Finally, these systems have in common that they are suspicionless dragnets, not limited to suspects or people who are being particularly investigated, but collecting information about everybody in case it might later be of interest to the government. But although travel is not sui generis in the way the government says, there are still significant differences. One is in the legal framework in which oddly, at least in statute law, Communications and the movement of our messages currently has more legal protection than information about the movements of our physical bodies. That seems weird, but that's the way it is. Congress doesn't seem inclined to fix it. The second big difference, perhaps bigger difference, is in how the government uses this data. This is not merely a panopticon of surveillance, but an active real-time control system. 
It's a bit confusing, and this is going to be a bit technical, and I will grant that everything I'm going to say from now on is a gross oversimplification. Otherwise, we'd be here for days or weeks. Travel IT is complex and technical, and DHS has confused the matters by its own inconsistency of policy and language over the last decade as the system has evolved. There are three different sets of not entirely identical but overlapping data that the government has required airlines and travel companies to collect and make available to the government, depending on whether it's an international or a domestic flight with different names. There are also different systems with different names, secure flight for domestic travel, the automated targeting system for international travel. Um, there's also a difference that probably isn't as significant as it looks, which is that in the case of international travel, DHS actually makes its own mirror copy of the reservation information, whereas for domestic travel, it merely maintains real-time access. But again, that doesn't matter so much. All of the controls on privacy of this information that the government has talked about are controls on its copy, which are meaningless as long as it can go back to the industrial host of the data and get another copy whenever it wants. So who's holding the copy really doesn't matter as long as the government has root access, which it does. The people who designed these systems with DHS, who mostly came from NSA-type backgrounds and knew nothing about the travel industry, assumed after 9-11 to be really easy, they would simply get the information that the airlines have about travelers and make their own use of it. But it doesn't really work like that because most airlines outsource the hosting of their reservations to companies called computerized reservation systems or global distribution systems, which also serve other travel companies, hotels, travel agencies, and so forth and so on. There are four major and one more recent and as yet minor, Google, which spent $700 million two years ago to get into this business, which gives you a sense of how significant a business it is, which together form, in a sense, a outsourced global cloud for hosting of reservation data on behalf of the entire travel industry. If you look at this diagram, you'll notice a couple of significant things. One is that there are typically at least two intermediaries between the traveler and the government. This is why the government can get this data from the travel companies without needing a warrant because under the third party doctrine, it's considered their property in which the traveler has no right. The traveler doesn't necessarily even have any way to know whether the government has gotten this data. But of course, being a global cloud, each node in the cloud is a point of vulnerability vulnerability to exploitation of this data by marketers and data miners who may be completely unknown and invisible to the traveler, by criminals from hackers to terrorists, and by government agencies, not merely DHS, but other law enforcement in the US and foreign governments and their law enforcement agencies around the world. This year, NBC News obtained a confidential Justice Department white paper detailing the Obama administration's legal justification for the targeted killing of American citizens abroad. The leak called attention to a discernible shift in the war on terror and how America wages it. Unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, are central to this new way of war. Steve Vladek is a professor of law at American University. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. It seems to me part of why we are so interested in drones uh, is because in many ways they're actually a microcosm of three distinct conversations that we want to have, uh, but that we're not very good at having, that we don't really have the terminology or the capacity to have. And so we've adopted drones as the mechanism, as the method through which to have this discussion. So let me briefly tell you what I think those three conversations are, and let me lay out what I think some of the questions are as applied to drones. So the three conversations first is the question of exactly who and where we are at war or say against whom and where are we at war. And so what I mean by that is part of the things that drones bring to the surface is the extent to which we are using military force in parts of the world where I think many Americans would be surprised to learn that we're using military force and that we might be using military force against at least some folks. Many Americans are surprised to learn we're using force against. And so I think part of what pushed Senator Paul to the floor of the Senate was the concern that indeed this force might even be in theory applicable at home. 
right, that um, to the extent the government is claiming the power to use drones, it might also therefore think it could use drones on the home front. And I think we've seen again in the last week renewed blurring by certain members of Congress of the distinction between the military paradigm and treating at least domestic acts of terrorism as crimes. But I suspect that will come up again later. So the first piece is, where is the war? And in this regard, it's important to remember what Congress has and has not said on the subject. So in September of 2001, Congress enacted the Authorization for Use of Military Force, the AUMF in our shorthand. And the AUMF is primarily targeted at those who are responsible for 9-11. It delegates to the president the power to identify those persons or organizations he believes were responsible for 9-11, and it authorizes the use of military force against those persons and organizations. And for the better part of the past decade, there hasn't been a lot of debate, even at the margins, about just how far that goes. There's been widespread consensus that al-Qaeda is a group that falls within the scope of that authorization. There's been at least relatively stable consensus that for a time the Taliban was a group that fell within that definition. And even today, there's at least some uh, view held widely by the government especially that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, uh, is part of that definition. But drones are being used increasingly at the margins of the authority that Congress authorized in 2001. Drones are being used in Yemen. Drones are being used in Africa. Drones are being used in Pakistan. And so I think part of the interest in drones is the extent to which it illuminates just how unclear we are what the geographic limits of the AUMF are, what the organizational limits of the AUMF are, what the citizenship limits of the AUMF are. I think that's part of why we've seen so much interest in this conversation. All right, the second piece of this uh, is the question of oversight. Uh, because related to the limits of the uh, scope of our use of force authority is how those limits will be enforced. I think it's safe to say Congress has not been particularly aggressive thus far in enforcing those limits, even where there have been concerns raised on the home front. A good example of this is the debate over the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, where a number of libertarians and liberals came together to raise serious concerns that the bill might authorize the detention of U.S. citizens or others arrested within the United States. And so the way Congress solved this problem was not to bar such detention, but merely to emphasize in Section 1021E of the NDAA that they weren't changing the status quo for those people. Never mind that no one can agree on what the status quo is. That is the most Congress has said on the subject in 12 years. And so I think oversight on the Hill has not exactly been forthcoming. What about judicial oversight? So there's been a fair amount of case law in the Guantanamo habeas cases about the scope of the AUMF, about who may be detained under the AUMF, for how long, under what circumstances. But that's been unique to the context of habeas, of claims by individuals who are in US custody and who, thanks to the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in the Boumediene case, are constitutionally entitled to raise those claims in the federal court. There has to date been no other litigation in other cases arising outside the United States trying to establish the outer bounds of the government's authority. Anwar al-Awlaki, his parents actually brought a suit before he was killed, seeking to get some clarification on when and where the government could use lethal force even against its own citizens. That suit was thrown out on political question grounds. There's now a Bivens suit pending, a suit for damages after he has been killed. If I were you, I would not hold my breath that the court in that case is going to reach the merits, right? So oversight, at least in its current form, is not working. So how might we fix that? And this is actually where I've been, I think, a little bit alone. You've heard some proposals out there for an ex-ante drone court but again, I think this misses the point that this is not about drones, right? I think the better way, if you really wanted to see vigorous oversight of our uses of force, would be to push Congress to actually create some kind of damages remedy um, for those who believe they have been wrongly targeted. Now you say, well, if they've been wrongly targeted, they're probably dead and cannot bring these claims. But we, of course, have the model of wrongful death actions 
in our tort law. It would be easy enough for Congress to borrow that, and it would allow for the development of a body of law that actually limited the government uh, to the terms of the authorizations Congress has passed. It would allow for more evaluation, more evolution in answering these really hard questions. I still wouldn't hold my breath, but it's at least something to think about if you really want to pursue reform, if you really want to push for something to harmonize uh, the government's actions with the law. At the very least, right, there should be more transparency. Because one of the hardest things about this conversation, and one of the biggest issues that we face, is that we actually aren't even sure what the government thinks the limits of its authority are. What I think the white paper highlighted for so many was that the government's rationales, at least the ones they're making public, are at once way too superficial and way too specific. So what I mean by that, right, is the white paper talks all about a US citizen, when of course the overwhelming majority of targeted killing operations involve non-citizens. Right? The white paper talks about circumstances that could be so general that, to paraphrase a certain junior senator from Texas, they might even include someone sitting at a cafe somewhere in the United States. That's the amount of detail we've gotten from the government. It's hard to have this conversation when so much remains shrouded in secrecy. So the second microcosm, the second piece of this, is how drones are about oversight. Last, and I'll make this point very brief, the third piece of the drone conversation is precedent. Right, So it's one thing to say when we are the only country in the world that appears to have the technology to carry out these operations, we may not be so worried about the consequences. We may not be so worried about things coming home to roost. But increasingly, I think it is a very serious concern that we make sure we are not setting a precedent pursuant to which other countries who, if they don't already have this technology, will soon would claim similar, if not broader, powers. And I think that's not about drones specifically. It's about the use of force on the territory of a foreign sovereign, right? And so that's why I think we see how there are these three very hard, very important, very serious conversations that intersect when it comes to drones, but that drones won't really resolve. When Calvin Coolidge became president in 1923, the top personal income tax rate was 77%. The national debt had risen from $1.5 billion in 1916 to $33 billion in 1919, in large part due to America's entry into World War I. Together with his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, Coolidge cut the top personal income tax rate to 24% and dramatically reduced government spending. The result was a dramatic decline in national debt and a roaring 1920s economy. Amity Schley's new book is Coolidge. It's an examination of the Coolidge presidency. She spoke at the Cato Institute in April. The story of the 20s tax experience is a tax triumph, but it's also a tax tragedy in some way for Coolidge the president from 23 to 29, Hoover's predecessor, this 30th president of the United States. It's a real drama, um, and we don't usually have economic dramas, or we have them, but nobody else appreciates them. Uh, so what I like about Coolidge is, uh, you know, mostly presidents are war presidents, they're commanders in chief, right? And we know that economics takes heroes and bravery. Coolidge was an economic hero for us an economic commander-in-chief, an economic general, one who sometimes chose not to command and delegated to colonels, I'll talk about that, who refrained from commanding on principle of delegation and who won his war because he was a good general in that way. He got the tax rates down to 25. The one takeaway about Coolidge uh, for anyone, any year, any time, is that when he left office after those 67 months, he came in in 1923 upon Harding's death and left in March 29, the federal budget was actually lower than when he came in. And right away when you're talking to students or policy people, they'll say, is that relative to GDP? Or is that real, Amity? You know, the um, sophisticated people will ask questions like that. It was real and it was nominal because they had deflation. And it was not relative to GDP, notwithstanding strong growth. Our project's called the 4% growth project. They had very strong growth in the 20s like that, notwithstanding increase in the population, notwithstanding um, anything. They actually shrank the budget under Coolidge. It's a little complicated story with a few twists and turns. And I want to say again, I'm grateful to Dan and Marion, my two good friends, and Cato, a very good friend to me of long standing, probably the third or fourth book I presented here for for giving me this time. 
The story doesn't start complicated. It starts with an economic situation similar to our own in some surprising ways, early 20s. The debt of the country is much higher than people imagined it could be just a few years earlier from the war. So they go up 10 billion, 20 billion, towards 30 billion when they had expected the debt to be about two. The energy sector was doing great. People were getting automobiles, remember. There was inflation, though. Prices, well, prices were too high, but the government wasn't admitting it was inflation. That's very similar to now. The Treasury Secretary of Wilson McAdoo rivaled our current Treasury Secretaries in his hubris about money and spending and our current Fed. Taxes were already high. You know that, I think Marion said that the taxes were in the 70s coming out of the war. There was a large spread between the price of municipal bonds and the price of corporate bonds, reflecting um, the fact that companies and individuals were fleeing. There was a capital strike. The tax sector to hide in the untaxed municipal bonds. This tax engine was rather inefficient. If you look in the charts, you can see that there were only 21 returns filed by people earning over a million dollars in the early one of the early 20s years. That meant there were more millionaires than that. A lot of people were hiding their money somewhere. There was abiding, troubling unemployment. There were two groups that were kind of angry, seeking entitlements. Remember, the progressive movement is on the march, and in Europe there are outright revolutions. And a lot of the American soldiers coming home have seen the European Revolution, thought they might like to do something somewhat similar at home. The one group that's quite angry are the veterans. Remember how many people served in World War I? It was universal conscription. Remember there were no antibiotics. Um, rem uh, remember that their wives did not work when these soldiers came home. So they came home in pain with the prospect of reduced employment and uh, not much help, and they wanted a pension, basically something like Social Security. That's the bonus that you've heard about. And the second entitlement group, I think I would call them that, are the farmers who wanted some kind of permanent equilibrating subsidy, especially as prices began to go on. So it's an angry country, right, that Harding and Coolidge encounter when they come in. There's very little voter trust. You don't trust the military very much after you've been through it often, right? You know, there are times when our country feels like a bad airport. That was one. This is one, too. Whereas this boarding pass is fake. I have to get another boarding pass. You go to the place with your boarding pass, and whoops, they won't accept it. It was that, that, that trust level. There were riots. Coolidge actually came to prominence because of the way he handled the riot following the police strike in Boston. He put it down with force, very bitter moment, driven in good measure, I want to add, by unacknowledged inflation. The policeman would not have struck had prices not gone up 50 or 60 percent while their wages stayed the same. What to do? Coolidge, you know, temperament is part of the story. He was born in Vermont. His father collected the snow tax in his town, Plymouth Notch, a town where the railroad chose not to go. His railroad all over Vermont, but not Plymouth Notch. His father was the sheriff who took the people in the cart when they didn't pay their taxes, maybe to the jail, including people he knew very well. His father ran the schools and had to figure out how to pay the teacher. Very tight background of farming people in a place that the government later determined in the New Deal. So wonderful. The New Deal is wonderful. It determined that scarcely an acre of Coolidge's hometown, Plymouth Notch, was arable. They're farming there, but it's not worth it, right? So he was a tight type, and he knew from experience you had to hold on to pennies, and he didn't really like to risk losing pennies, either for the government or for himself. He, it, that was bred in him, and I was also, I would say, genetic uh, personality. Um, and the emblem of Coolidge's mentality vis-a-vis -vis Fisk, he was not a Jack Kemp. He was not a large, happy fiscal hero. He was tight. The emblem that I found that suited Coolidge best, it was so typical uh, Coolidge, was he, the White House got twin lion cubs from a mare in South Africa. Nice gift. Mrs. Coolidge loves animals. They love kitty cats, etc. The White House of the Coolidges, they named those lion cubs Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. <laughs> And they were even weight. They were fed with steaks and kept at an even weight. So there wasn't a big old lion called Tax Cut and a little bitty weeny runty lion called Budget Bureau. They were even. And that is the Coolidge personality.
as he confronts you know, what they're going to do. Those who cast him as a visceral supply sider of the jolly variety, a happy warrior, he isn't. That doesn't mean he's not good, but he's different. The administration, remember his treasury secretary is Andy Mellon, a figure uh, from Commerce Without Parallel. And what does the Coolidge administration do? By temperament, Mellon's a bit different. Coolidge is a bit more like a preacher. Mellon is a bit more like a scientist. He has an idea. He dislikes Mellon, the inefficiency of the tax code. I told you they had high rates and they had very few people paying them at the top. His idea is from business, business school, like the sort of thing you would teach at NYU Stern. Well, when you cut the price, you lose profits, but you can make it up on volume. Every one of our children or spouses or us learned this in business school. It's basic business, right? Cut price, make it up on volume. Walmart, right? And uh, Mellon talked about that in railroading. You charge what the traffic will bear as a freight price. And if the trains stay away, the cars stay away, the businesses don't want to use your railroad, you cut the freight cost, right? You cut your toll. Very pragmatic scientific attitude. And so he wanted to do what he called scientific taxation, which Dan will probably talk about more, Mellon. And see, you know, when you tinker with the toy, right, income tax is very young. It's a toy. Nobody expected it can be that good. Tariffs brought in a lot of money in this period. The income tax was this little weenie adjunct to the tariff engine at the time. And Mellon's idea, first under Harding and then under Coolidge, is also he wants to get money into the system, to the government. Well, maybe we'll end the tax-protected status of municipal bonds. He tried to get a constitutional amendment to do that, to force people to put their money in good ideas instead of just in town infrastructure, which is where the municipal bonds went. Um, he fails on that, so he goes at the same problem another way. Mellon is a wonderfully analytic type. He says, I'll cut the tax rates so that the spread between the municipal bonds will be just relatively less attractive and people will pay taxes and invest in new ideas instead of town governments. I'll broaden the base so that more people pay taxes. I'll get a better system. And the story of the rate cuts of the 20s, you may know, they cut taxes a number of times. Friends of Reagan have told the story that after Reagan was shot, he read a bio of Coolidge while he was recovering, and he counted the times they cut taxes. They cut taxes a lot, one, two, three, four, maybe five times. So they cut them once in 1921, before Coolidge was president, Harding dies. They cut them again in 24 rates, and they cut the tax rates again in 26. Always, um, in the later part, Coolidge and Mellon working together, two silent guys, one a scientist and one um, a saver, more on the clergy side, um, but both silent. And it, this was a, an enormous campaign, equal to a war campaign, and they never talked. People said they conversed in pauses. So that's interesting, too. And they did succeed. So you see the rate going 73, 58, 46, that's Coolidge, 25, three points below the Reagan rate, Coolidge. It was hard to do, and we forget that. Everyone says, oh, government was smaller. People didn't expect much from government. The progressives were on the march. They really did want to nationalize power. People thought they might. They wanted to renationalize the railroad, which had just been nationalized and denationalized in World War I. And they got a serious amount of the vote in 1924. They got 17% of the vote. So you can't discount all this. It was there. Coolidge, I think it's important to look at his mind watching this process. He's wary. On the one hand, he's wary about Mellon's cuts because he thinks Mellon's idea that you might get more revenue when you cut the rate, well, that might that might not work out, and then where would you be? You'd have a deficit, right? Coolidge just genetically didn't like that. And then he was also aware, what made him even more nervous was what if Mellon's idea worked? And when you cut the rate, you got more revenue, then a lot of revenue would come in and the Democrats would spend it. <laughs> it's very, between a rock and a hard place, very uncomfortable, right? But he has another reason for doing this. He's for smaller government. He wants to quick get the money, he's paid on the debt. Before the politicians get a hold of it. So you can feel the anxiety in the White House in these years, and yet Coolidge also is a delegator. Mellon is clearly a talent. It was said three presidents served under him. He's a figure like Bernanke in the culture, and Coolidge was a fabulous delegator, and Mellon does execute, and lo and behold, they get the results. They get more money than they said they would with the rate cuts. They get the rich 
more rich pay their fair share. <laughs> Many more wealthy top returns on the, in the books. All of a sudden, instead of 20, they might have 10 times that. The spread between the municipal bonds and the corporate paper narrows. The economy booms. You can look at the patents and see a lot of the boom of the 20s, very real and beautiful. People having new ideas. This is the period where people got toilets, where they figured out television, though we only got it later, And in addition to the things you know about, such as automobile. So Mellon is happy his experiment worked. And that is important for us to remember um, in these discussions. But it's also important to remember that Coolidge thought they worked for another reason, which is that the people trusted him to cut the taxes because he thought taxes were wrong, no matter where we were in the business cycle. They was just wrong. to It was legalized larceny, as he put it. He wasn't at all interested in the stimulus side. And I do believe that he was interested in the trust, that people could trust that the U.S. government would get out of the way so they could have fun. That's why Coolidge cut taxes. A very um, different. The machine, okay, Mellon had that, but that's not why Coolidge was interested. I would like to try to quantify how much value that trust added when we quantify growth. I, you know, I'll entertain suggestions, but it, it did. You can see it very well um, in the rate of contract writing along with the patents. When we tell the story, we kind of forget the trust part. We just say, look, we figured out how to get more revenue, supply-side rate cuts, oh, you know, more activity, and so on. We focus on the tax toy. And I think um, this book is a little bit of a tragedy. Coolidge inadvertently set the stage for the destruction of some of the things he prized, like smaller government, because that tax engine was so good, it was turning into a regular monster. By the end, well, the tariffs were no longer necessary. This was becoming obvious because the income tax machine collected so much money. And people became obsessed with the toy. This is the thesis of my friend Joe Thorndike um, of Tax Notes, he, who wrote a, did write a book called Their Fair Share. And I think he's right. Coolidge and Mellon, through their intelligent experimenting and their development, their improvement of the automobile, the Model A uh, of taxation, um, gave their successors an engine. And the first successor who used it as an engine, who, who wanted to play with the tax machine, was Hoover. And when he cut the tax to 24%, because there was a crash, right? September 29 was the crash. The rate went down to 24% uh, that autumn. It was a temporary stimulative tax cut that Hoover put in. It was not a trustworthy cut because it was going to go away. And of course, it did go away. And then Hoover played with the machine some more. At the very end of, of uh, Mellon time, uh, tragically, they raised the rate into the 60s. I do think this is the emphasis on the toy. Coolidge cut taxes in government so well, he enabled others to raise them. If you look at our discussion today, we have two components, as in the case of the endangered 401k, as in the case of Cyprus. One is, how do we get the money and solve the fiscal problems? But the other is, how do you get people to trust so they want to grow again? I think that when we're planning and talking, if we just talk like behaviorists and rabbits, oh, the rabbit will be happy and bounce forward and eat the carrot, we uh, make ourselves um, absolutely indistinct from Democrats or Republic, you know, all, both parties there alike. They kind of infantilize the taxpayer. Well, we'll give him two carrots incentive. Then you don't get the growth you expect. Hoover didn't get it. We didn't get it either party when we did these little behaviorist exercises. The real part is the commitment to smaller government has to be there too. So that's the Coolidge legacy um, when we speak of it in politics. The greatest reduction of mass poverty in human history has occurred during the current era of globalization, according to Deepak Lal, Cato Institute senior fellow and renowned development economist. In his new book, Poverty and Progress, Realities and Myths About Global Poverty, Lal examines the economic realities of developing countries and dismantles a wide range of myths about economic progress. You can order your copy of Poverty and Progress from the Cato Institute store by visiting cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.